book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, please open our hearts and minds so that through your word, we can see a clear picture of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we continue the series we've been doing since Easter, where we've asked what impact does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have on us today? Here on Advent Hope, we spent a long time on this topic. Like I said, we've been exploring this question since Easter, so for six weeks. Can you believe that? Six weeks ago was Easter, and I can't believe time has gone by that fast. I actually refuse to believe that it's almost the end of May, because in my head, we're still in like late February, early March at best. I don't know about you, but since the pandemic reached the US back in March 2020, time just doesn't seem to make sense anymore. There's something hazy about time now. I've thought a lot about why this might be, and I think that for me at least, it has a lot to do with the fact that I no longer keep New Year's resolutions. Now, I used to be huge on New Year's resolutions, and I would track my year by how closely I was progressing towards my goal. And then January 6, 2021 happened, and you could probably guess why, but I suddenly had no desire to have salads for dinner. I sat glued to my television screen, flipping through news networks, trying to make sense of the world, trying to make sense of the fact that my sense of security was shaken. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm gonna have that extra cookie. No more New Year's resolutions for me. And since then, time, among other things, has made a little bit less sense. Which is why the thought that Easter was six weeks ago is kind of blowing my mind right now. Mostly because I can't decide whether six weeks is a short amount of time or if six weeks was a long time ago. And maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe it depends. Here's an example. On the morning of Good Friday, I pulled out my clothing from my closet and organized it into these special storage bags. My intention was to do the KonMari method. You probably heard of it. Um, 
it's where you kind of like look at your clutter and decide whether to keep it if it sparks joy. And I did this because I had watched Marie Kondo's show, um, the creator of that method on Netflix. I highly recommend it. And in that show, she helps families tidy their homes using her method. And I cried every episode. So I was like, let me give this method a chance. And so far, the only thing that's made me cry is that my clothing has been in those bags for the past six weeks. And sometimes I still have to search through them to find an outfit. So for the task of organizing my closet, six weeks is a short period of time. My mother might argue otherwise. But here's another example. Six weeks ago, about two days after I tore my closet apart, it was Easter Sunday and many of us Advent Hopers spent a big chunk of that day in Central Park. That day we sang together and listened to an amazing jazz band play. Some even woke up and met there at seven in the morning to sing and pray. I wasn't in that number, but I heard it was lovely. And on that day, Easter Sunday, after the events ended at Central Park, uh, two of my favorite girlfriends walked from Central Park to a diner on the Upper West Side, and we talked about life and laughed together over brunch. And I remember feeling so full that day, not just from the food, but from the sense of togetherness and the sense of love and community that I felt. And we haven't had an opportunity to get together for brunch like that since, and it's something that I yearn for. So in that case, six weeks is just way too long. So maybe it depends. It depends on what you're doing, who you're with, on the cost or benefit of the whatever activity. 40 days could be a long time, or maybe no time at all. In our text of emphasis found in Acts chapter 1, the author, Luke, tells us, in verse 3, that after the Christ's resurrection, he spent six weeks or 40 days with his disciples, and he speaks to them about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a very important topic for the disciples because these were men of Israel who had grown up in the first century. They not only were taught about how the people of Israel had lived in, for centuries under oppressive rule of, under nation, of other nations in the past, but they were experiencing oppression at that moment in the hands of the Roman Empire. So they were taught to hope in a Messiah, the one who would finally free the people of Israel from oppression. The kingdom of God to them was the reinstallation of Israel to its glory days. It was the culmination of all their hopes and dreams. The Messiah that they were expecting was one with political power stronger than the Rome, their Roman oppressors. And with political power comes hierarchy. And one day, a man named Jesus comes and tells them to drop everything and to follow him, and they did. And maybe they weren't too sure about this guy in the beginning, but they started to see signs and wonders and thought, could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah that we've been waiting for? And one day it's confirmed. It was a Sunday and the man Jesus, who, that they, who they have been following for three years, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and a crowd gathers and begins to wave palm branches shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Surely this is confirmation. Surely this is a sign that all of their suspicions were correct and that this was evidence that Jesus was the Christ. This was, this was evidence that this man Jesus would have political power and with political power comes hierarchy. And if there's a hierarchy, they, as Jesus is in a circle, would be on top. A few days later, everything changed. One of their own betrayed this man and the remaining disciples went from certainty that this was the Messiah to running away from him at the first sign of danger and at least in one case denying that they knew him at all. And at night, and that night they watched from a distance as the man who represented all their hopes and dreams died on a cross. And for three days they suffered and grieved and wondered, how could this all go wrong? 
They heard over and over again this message about the kingdom of God, and they were so convinced it was about political power. What did they miss? What didn't they understand? Until on the third day, they learned of the resurrection of the Savior, and hope was restored. And they had, 30, they had 40 days with him. And after what they had been through, those 40 days must have been a bomb. This was their chance, the chance to truly understand what Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom of God. Maybe they could finally understand how this Messiah would come into power and take away all oppression. In those 40 days, they probably asked many questions. In fact, the very last thing that they asked Jesus was a question. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And instead of giving them the answer they were looking for, verse 7 says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then he just leaves. And verse 9 says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. 40 days just wasn't long enough. 40 days to finally understand what this was, what Jesus meant when, when he was talking about the kingdom of heaven. It just wasn't enough. I can only imagine how terribly confused and sad and disappointed the disciples were in that moment. And verse 10 of Acts chapter 1 says, they stared up into the sky and they looked up intently, and I imagine it was in confusion. The message of the kingdom of heaven was something that they heard Jesus talk about constantly. It was central to the message of the ministry of Jesus on earth. In, God, in the gospel of Luke, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus declares, I must proclaim the good news to the kingdom of God to other towns also, because this is why I was sent. The kingdom of God was central to the message of the ministry of Jesus on earth. And many times when Jesus shared the message about the kingdom of God, he would use parables. Here's one from, the, from Luke chapter 13 that you may be familiar with. In verse 18, it begins, Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds perched on its, on its branches. Again, he said, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the, the dough. And I imagine that the disciples heard this parable through the prism of their experiences and hopes and thought, okay, the kingdom of God is like yeast and it's like a mustard seed. So whatever this thing is, it starts off small and it grows into this massive thing. That sounds a lot like political power that we've been waiting on. And with political power comes a hierarchy. And the disciples' focus on political power can be seen in their interactions with one another. In Luke chapter 9, we learn in verse 46 that the disciples began arguing about which of them would be the greatest. But Jesus knew their thought, so he brought a little child to the side, and then he said to them, anyone who welcomes a child like this on my behalf and welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is least among you is the greatest. And even in their misunderstanding, Jesus continues to teach them. Here's another parable found in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then his, in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. 
When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. So whatever this thing that Jesus is talking about, whatever the kingdom of God is about, it's something so valuable that a person is willing to give up everything to have it. And the disciples, hearing these stories through the prism of the, their experiences and oppression and their hope for a Messiah must have thought, exactly, the kingdom of God, this thing that Jesus keeps talking about, he must be talking about power. He must be talking about political power that we've been hoping for. And Mark chapter 10, we see another example of where the disciples' hearts and minds were. Starting in verse 35, it says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee came to him, teacher, they said, we want you to do something for us. And Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other sit at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus was trying to explain to them that this wasn't about political power. This wasn't about a hierarchy or a pecking order. The kingdom of God was something else entirely. And even in their misunderstanding, Jesus continues to teach them. In Luke chapter eight, he shares another parable. And starting at verse five, it reads, and a farmer went out to sow, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plant. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. And though Jesus spoke in parables, he was not deliberately concealing the kingdom of God from his disciples. It explains that in, ver in verse 11 of Luke 8, that Jesus went on to explain that whatever this thing is, the kingdom of God, that it's found, whatever this foundation was, that in order for people to receive it, the conditions had to be right. But looking at this through the prism of their own experiences, of the ideal of power that they held onto, the disciples had no choice but to, con to conclude that the gospel, according to this understanding, was about political power. And with political power comes hierarchy. And that, to them, was the good news. So after six weeks with the resurrected Savior, resurrected Savior just 40 days, the last thing that they asked Jesus is, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? essentially saying, when are we gonna have this political power? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the dates the father has set by his own authority. And then he just leaves. Yes, he, left, he leaves them with a promise. He promises the Holy Spirit and he leaves them with instructions. He tells them to go preach and be his witnesses, but he doesn't leave them with the answers that they're looking for. What is the kingdom of God all about? What is this thing that starts off so small, but that's so valuable you can give up everything for it? What is this thing that starts off so small and can grow into something massive and overwhelming? What is this thing that in order to receive it, the conditions have to be right? And Jesus left his disciples staring up into the sky in confusion thinking, if he wasn't talking about restoring the kingdom to Israel, if he's not talking about political power, what is it? What is the foundation of the kingdom of God? And we sit here today and we ask ourselves the same question. In fact, for the past 2,000 years, theologians, people much smarter than me, have been trying to figure out what Jesus meant when he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not a theologian, even though I stand here, but I'm, so I'm not gonna pretend to know the answer, but I will share my theory. The foundation of the kingdom of God was never about political power. 
It was never about hierarchy. This thing that starts off small but grows into something overwhelming and massive, this thing that is so valuable that you, you, it's worth giving up everything that you have just to obtain it, to me, that sounds a lot like love. And like described in the parable of the sower, love requires the right conditions to take root and to grow. Because what if the parable of the sow, in the parable of the sower, Jesus was describing the need for the work of justice? What if we advocated for those who are trampled on, gave to those who were thirsty and hungry, and connected with those who were choked by life's worry, riches, and pleasures so that love can take root and grow? Because justice, as Dr. Cornell West describes it, is what love looks like in public. I say all this at the risk of sounding trite. We live in a society where the meaning of love has been diluted and where we're more likely to say, hey, I love those shoes than we are to say, I love my neighbor. We live in a world where we are separated by distrust of each other. We attend churches where we are divided by race, class, and political affiliation. We have become so separated and distrustful of love that the Surgeon General recently released a statement called Our Epidemic of Isolation and Loneliness. Here's an excerpt from that report. Loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health. It is associated with greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. We are so separated from love that it's killing us. And it's, so, it's no wonder that we've lost trust in the power of love when we live in a society that teaches us and convinces us that we are unlovable in order to sell us the things that will make us rich enough, powerful enough, thin enough, muscular enough, educated enough, all the things that we think we need to be enough to be loved. But what if the foundation of the kingdom of God is found in one of the first Bible verses we learned as children, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This may sound trite, but think about it. What would change in your life if you truly believed this verse? If you truly believed that you are loved, if you truly believe that you are enough, if you truly believe that love, the thing that conquered death and therefore the most powerful thing in the world was given to you by the master of the universe before you even came into being. What, if, what would happen if you truly believed that God was willing to give up everything because he loves you? What would change if you truly believed the words of 1 John 4:19? we love because he first loved us? And what if we were, when we were confronted by the evils of the world, we didn't run to hierarchy, we didn't run to political power, but we allowed the most powerful thing in the world, the thing that conquered death, to hold us as we navigate it. And I don't want to discount the fact that love is hard, but this thing can start off small and it can grow into something overwhelming and massive. This thing is so valuable that it's worth giving up everything you have just to obtain it. So how can we do this? Maybe we can learn a thing or two from the apostles in Acts chapter 1. If you remember, the Bible says that they were staring up intently to the sky and in their disappointment. Um, but verse 10 says, suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stare, stand here staring into the sky? 
This same Jesus who has been taken into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And the apostles went back home and verse 14 says they all joined together constantly in, pray, in prayer. Soon after, Jesus kept his promise and sent the Holy Spirit to help the apostles figure out what this work of love was all about. Because this work was hard, but Jesus promised that they'd never have to do it alone. And the result of this is found in Acts chapter 2, in verse 42. It says, they devoted them themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and, ev and had everything in common. They sold property and possession to give to anyone who had need. Every day they contributed to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This thing that started off so small grew into something overwhelming and massive into something so valuable that it's worth giving up everything you own to obtain it. And it's why you're sitting here today. So church family, this is my prayer today. May you remember that you are loved by the master of the universe. And you, may you remember that this love is the most powerful thing in the world and that you have access to it. And may you give it away, and may you give away that love, however small, May it grow into something so overwhelming and so massive that it changes the world. Amen.